Hello, everyone, and welcome back for Season 5 of Lush Life. We begin this season with an author, a speaker, a liveryman at the Worshipful Company of Distillers, a keeper of the quiche, and most of all, a champion of whiskey. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we're inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. Eddie Ludlow is all of those things I described and more. He founded the Whiskey Lounge, which has been introducing whiskey to the world for over 10 years and has just published his first book, Whiskey, A Tasting Course. Whether you're a beginner to whiskey or a pro, there is no way you can't learn something from his book. Everything about it makes you want to pick up that bottle and serve yourself a dram right now. Unfortunately, due to recent circumstances, the Whiskey Lounge has had to cancel their in-real-life tastings. But that hasn't stopped them from planning a virtual festival, their Whiskey Festival in a Box, from October 16th to 18th. Eddie will tell you all about how to sign up later on in the show. Dram's ready? Let's go. I am so excited to have you on the show. I am sitting here with three fabulous whiskeys in front of me, and I have been longing to talk to you after reading your book, a fabulous book. So thank you so much for being on the show. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. So I want to know everything because you have titles that I don't even know how to pronounce, and I want to know how you got those. So let's start with kind of how you fell into whiskey. Um, I'll probably interrupt and ask you a million questions along the way, but you know, how did you even decide that you wanted to be in the spirits industry? Uh, I, I'm not sure whether it was it was me that chose whiskey or whiskey that chose me. To be honest, um, I uh, went to college in a place called Newcastle upon Tyne. Um, I went to art college for a couple of years. Sorry, one year. And then I um, decided that even drawing was too too much like hard work, so I did uh, a music course for two years after that. Um, and then found at the end of the course that um, I, you know I'd learned quite a bit, but I realised that my options were limited as a mu- you know as a professional musician. You know I enjoyed playing with my blues band, but I couldn't see myself as a teacher or a session musician. You know, kind of compromising my musical taste which a lot of people have to do in order to make a, a living out of music. Um, what did you play? What instrument? Well, I, I, I did, and I still do play guitar. Uh-huh. Um, I don't play as much as I used to, obviously, but um, I still enjoy playing now and again. Um, and, you know, I just it just suddenly hit me, oh, my God, what am I going to do? You know, I've, <laughs> I've learned to draw and play guitar, but, you know, I've, I've learned very little apart from, you know, life skills. So... Um, I went home uh, almost with my tail between my legs back down to uh, the southeast of England, worked in a pub for um, six to nine months, I think it was, um, learned, about, learned a bit about beer and beer making because the landlord, landlord there was very, very into his real ale, you know, way before the current, I'm not going to call it a fad. You know, it's a genuine enthusiasm for uh, real ale now in this in this country and elsewhere. But this was way before that, and and it just fascinated me that someone would be so into alcohol. 
Mm-hmm. But it would it wasn't just about getting loaded. It was actually <laughs> it was something <laughs> a lot more behind it all. And he used to, you know, he used to sort of drag me into the cellar and say, Look, oh try this one try this one. You know, I've had this one uh, laying for, for for a week or so and taste how different it is now and it was just his sort of pure enthusiasm which became kind of infectious, I guess. And so I kind of continued with that, and my dad as well. You know, he's not into whiskey, but he's he's into wine. Uh, he he won't thank me for once. Uh, uh, he was he was having dinner. We were having dinner once, and it was before I was drinking. But he um, he was drinking a, a white wine, and uh, <clears throat> he said, um, "Oh, could you get me some more of that delicious Chablis from the fridge?" I think. And <laughs> I looked at the open <laughs> bottle of wine in the fridge and it was English white wine, you know, and at the time, you know, this is when English wine was not the English wine of of now. This is back in the nineties when the English still wine was perhaps not the best. No award winning. He's never, he's never lived it down that he couldn't tell the difference between an English table wine and a Chablis. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it all kind of contributed to my uh, very early education in, in alcoholic uh, products. Um, and so, um, after my experience in the pub, I ended up moving back to Newcastle upon Tyne because I, I kind of, it's weird. I got reverse homesick because uh-huh. um, I loved it so much up there, and I missed all my friends from the college days. And they were all, most of the guys from college lived in in, in the Toon. Um, so I moved back. Um, I I, tro- I trod the streets looking for for work. You know, I was, uh-huh. I was literally just by that point just needed a job and so I walked um, uh, past a branch of Odbins the old wine merchant and saw that they had an advert in the window looking for a van driver stroke sales assistant so I wandered in I had my guitar on my back and my ponytail in behind me I I must have looked a bit of a sight and um, um I went in and and said to them, uh, "I'm, you know, I'm looking looking for a job. This this sounds like something I could do. Um, how about it?" And I, I kind of want to say, and the rest is history. And the rest is history, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's obviously a lot more history to it, but right. that's how it that's how it all began. But I needed two interviews to get this job. You know, it wasn't it wasn't easy. Uh, I remember I had to sell them a, bot- a bottle of beer because I knew nothing about wine at that point, mm-hmm. uh, but I knew a little bit about beer. And they had a beer. I remember the beer was what well, was Hotback Summer Lightning, and uh, I had to describe the beer to them and you know really sell it to them as if it was a new car or something, uh, which which tickled me. You know, I thought, well, yeah, this this could be quite cool. I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. And so. You know, selling wine is different from selling whiskey. When did you start, I guess, you're falling in love with whiskey or even knowing, you know, drinking whiskey or knowing it was there kind of? Yeah, well, <clears throat> probably back in the pub days because I was, it was my dad's birthday and, you know, I'd seen all the whiskeys behind the bar and uh, I thought that, you know, most men like whiskey. Is that not, is that not a thing, <laughs> you know, back in the bad days? And um, and so my my boss, the landlord there, um, he I remember he recommended I get him a bottle of Macallan ten year old. Um, I remember looking at the bottle and thinking, oh, 
that's, yeah, that's not an unattractive item, is it? You know, that looks really good. And so I ended up buying him a bottle. I don't remember what happened to the bottle. I suspect probably uh, my dad's um, friends drank it for him because I don't, I don't think he would have done. Uh-huh. Um, but that was my first experience, I suppose, with single malt whiskey. But certainly, I mean, in Odbins back in the day, it was almost as much a whiskey specialist as a wine specialist, and particularly the further north you got in the country. So the the branch that I worked at Newcastle upon Tyne City Centre was one of the biggest selling um, Scotch whiskey and particularly single malt whiskey branches in the UK. So we had access to you know all the really good stuff, and you know I, it it breaks my heart actually to think back to some of the stuff we had in the mid to late nineties, which seemed expensive at the time but was dirty cheap really. And I can still remember a lot of the prices um, that were drilled into my head. And, uh, you know, I kind of wish I could go back in time. And oh, I'm sure. A, with a fresh credit card and, and, and buy, buy, buy. And snap up all of those. Oh, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, you know, you couldn't give it away then. In the mm. 90s, people were, you know, there were one or two people who who were in the know and were very savvy and, and bought a lot of stuff. You know, some people drank it as well. Um, but generally speaking, whiskey was not in the same state as it is now. No, people were drinking Cosmos and Caipirinhas were just happening or, you know, or they were to us, at least when I live in New York, all of a sudden I remember the 90s, you know. Yeah. No one ever mentioned an old-fashioned. Oh, well, I mean, in Newcastle, you know? fine. they wouldn't at that stage have been drinking Caipirinhas. It was more uh, vodka and Red Bull and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 2020 and and um uh the cider and black currant uh, you know really quite <laughs> sophistication and when did you start drinking it and i guess teaching yourself or giving yourself that whiskey education well it was in oddbins um you know i had two scottish bosses um ah that's manager, it yeah exactly a manager and a, an assistant manager plus we had a team of sales assistants, most of whom were probably older than me, um, who had quite a lot of experience in wine and whiskey tastings. Um, and I, I think I, I because of my artistic background, I became kind of the, the shop artist and I would, so I would do all the labels for the bottles. And I don't know if you remember Oddbins of old, but it used to be really lovely kind of handwritten descriptive labels for, for all the wine, all the whiskey, everything. So you could really, if you went in and you didn't speak to someone, you could easily select something mm-hmm. just by these lovely descriptors. And so I think it was when I was writing the descriptors for the whiskies and I became more and more fascinated. In it. And I think the whole um, Ralph Steadman connection was really, I found really uh, powerful as well, because he did a, a, I think it was called um, Life in Still Motion or something like that. It's a, a, a book of his illustrations of Scottish distilleries. And it's, I mean, it's, it's beautiful and, and they're really lovely. And, and that kind of had an influence on me as well. So I think I just became more and more fascinated by, the look of it and then the taste of it, you know, I started to, we had a lot of bottles open that we would be given by, um, I guess, Oddbins would be given by distillers in order to help 
customers make their selections. And so we'd have, at any one time, we would have 50, 60 bottles open. And oh, so, fantastic. You know, That's amazing. Oh, and, you know, to this day, I would say to anyone who is whiskey curious that they should always shop in an independent specialist because a lot of those, uh, the, you know, these the independent specialists now are run by people who work for Oddbins or similar companies who've then gone on to, you know, do their own thing. And they've learned from that, you know, they, and they've learned that the most powerful tool for selling is to be able to taste. Of course. There's no substitute for that. And you can't generally do that in a supermarket. You know, it's a fairly, um, you know, it's a fairly um, anemic um, experience and, you know, you don't get to chat with people who really care about the product. So I would always say go to a specialist if you can. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a little bit more challenging at the moment with the current circumstances, but, um, you know, there are there are specialists out there who will actually send small samples so you don't have to invest in a full bottle to begin with, which is a great idea as well. Which is, yeah, it's a fantastic idea. Mm -hmm. And so you became, and please uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the 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 best seller of whiskey in that odd bins for the whole of the UK or I, I, at that time. Yeah. I mean, certainly that shop and, and our team was, was known as, as, as we were the biggest seller of single malt whiskey in England in odd bins. There was a couple of stores in the, in Scotland that sold more, but not, not, not many of them. Um, and then I, 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 I decided to start visiting Scotland uh, and visiting the distilleries myself, um, and that just that that's really, I guess, where it, where I got really set off because I know I'm sure you you know you've been to one or two distilleries in your time. There's no substitute for going where the stuff is made, you know, and tasting it with the people that make it whilst they're telling you how they do it. Especially in Scotland, where it's so romantic. And, um, you know, you just get caught up in the stories as well. I'm a storyteller, story fan. And so that just, yeah. you know, gobsmacks me every time I go to one. Yeah, yeah. You know, the liquid is fabulous, obviously. But, you know, combined with the history, the story, the place, you know, it just can you know, you can fall in love with it. it you, mm -hmm. you know, it can get into your blood. It can obsess you. Absolutely. So yeah. when did you think it was time to move on from Oddbins and then become uh, I guess, well, a, the, the brand ambassador to um, yeah. a few of these? Well, you know, I, so I spent a few years in that shop in Newcastle. I started doing whiskey tastings because they had already started doing wine tastings outside of business hours for customers. So I said, well, why, why shouldn't we start doing whiskey tastings on a similar basis? So that's mm -hmm. that really how it started, I guess, uh, once I'd you know, started going back and forth to Scotland. And then I would move around the country from store to store as a manager, just um, exploring new areas. I would start my little whiskey tasting club in each of those areas. And, um, yeah, um, and from there I moved to York, which is where I still live. And I got a call from one of the older managers of the shop I was running in York saying, oh, um, 
there's a, a recruitment company might be in touch with you because there's a there's a role that they've heard of that they think might be right up your street and so this uh, recruitment agency called me up and said um this business is looking for someone uh, you know someone to to be a whiskey ambassador for one of their brands uh, would you be interested and you know i'd kind of done as much as i'd wanted to with with oddbins similarly to my musical career you know i'd kind mm-hmm. of bring it to the point where uh yes i could maybe have gone on done area management or some you know desk jockeys t- you know role but you know what why what I enjoyed the most was talking to people face to face and and you know really helping them along their journey and I just didn't think I could do that anymore so I I leapt at the chance um so it was Moet Hennessy UK uh and the brand at the time was a, a, a very niche blended scotch whiskey called the Bailey Nickel Jarvie which um very sadly is as is no longer with us they they delisted it they stopped making mm-hmm. it because it just wasn't, you know, I don't think it sat within their kind of luxury portfolio. So, right. so um, and they didn't really know what to do with it. Um, but fortunately for me, when I was working for them, I, you know, they, they also distribute and own Ardbeg and Glamorangi, which, you know, two of my favorite single malt whiskeys. So I, I, I kind of said, well, look, you know, if I'm talking about this, you know, surely, surely it makes sense for me to talk about these guys as well. And so I soon kind of transmogrified my role from being for one whiskey to being three very, very good whiskeys. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I did that for a couple of years. And were you going all around the country and just introducing people to the whiskeys that are, you know, Ardbeg and Glenmorangie? And, yeah, so I would you know? do, yeah, so I would, it would range from representing them in whiskey festivals, ironically, um, doing tastings for uh, hotels and uh, sommeliers. And uh, yeah, it was, and also training the, the staff within Moet Hennessy itself, because you know, by their own admission, they were very much wine and champagne orientated. Mm-hmm. You know, they knew a bit about cognac because of Hennessy, obviously, but they didn't really know about whiskey. So it was my role to train the UK sales staff in the ways of whiskey and, and you know, how it should be uh, presented. Well, I know in my limited knowledge of whiskey, um, Glen Morangie, which I'm looking at right now, is one that I guess most people have heard of. Ardbeg, maybe not so much, at least mm-hmm. unless you're maybe a diehard, you know, really <laughs> peaty whiskey fan. Um, did you find that, you know, again, excuse my ignorance on whiskey, but how did you find, um, you know, during the time that you were there that, that uh, you know, people responded to the two whiskeys? Was it surprising to you or was it teaching people things that they already knew? Uh, it, I mean, it would vary incredibly because obviously, you know, certain parts of the country tend to be ahead of other parts of the country in terms of their evolution, uh, drinks wise, food wise, and so on. So, you know, London almost out of necessity is always well ahead of pretty much anywhere else in the UK. Um, so it would really, it would really vary a lot. And, and I would be surprised sometimes because you you would think most people would, would prefer Glamorangy and, Probably that was that was the case, but then there would be the occasional 
And I, I remember actually a couple of females who would be in on the tasting and um, would actually prefer the Ardbeg to the Glenmorangie, even though they were never, you know, they, they confessed to never having really tasted whiskey before. And I think that's because when you taste them side by side, because they are so, you know, diametrically opposed style-wise, it's almost like two different categories of spirit rather than two different whiskies. And so if you, if you, if you have that affinity with something smoky, forget about the whiskey aspect mm-hmm. of it, then you can kind of understand how that might be attractive to, to somebody. So, yeah, I would, I would definitely have the odd surprise. Yeah, I think my first whiskey was my. I had a grandmother who loved who loved single malt, and so I think the first thing she ever gave me was something very peaty. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, that is really a, like if I'm sitting down to have a whiskey, a dram, that is what I would reach for. It kind mm-hmm. of feels like you're having an illicit cigarette, even though I've never smoked or ever wanted to smoke. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This was we're talking pre the new cocktail renaissance, where kind of everyone. Is drinking bourbon and whiskeys now. So it's not surprising that people might not have been so in tune with mm-hmm. the specifics of each whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know? yeah. I mean, yeah. It's true to say that we, we started the um, York Whiskey Festival back in 2001, 2002. I'm always very hazy. Some people insist it's 2001, but I just don't think I can remember past 2002. Um, and then we we started the full time business in two thousand and eight, um, which is you know I finished with Moet Hennessy in two thousand and seven, um, and you know I think back to those days and very they they feel like very innocent days when life was quite simple and um, yeah people didn't have the same level of knowledge, but at the same time they perhaps didn't have the same level of preconception. And and you know being very judgmental about things. Mm-hmm. And I think I think what we're at risk at at the moment is people getting too bogged down in the minutia of of how a whiskey is made and um, you know the casks it's been in and you know whether the cask was emptied on a Thursday and <laughs> you know just kind of getting too uh, obsessive with 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 detail. And I think. What I'd like to see people just do is, is just enjoy it. You know, the stuff is being made for you to enjoy it. And yeah, yeah, yes. If you're, if you, if part of that enjoyment for you is the detail, fine. But look, don't let that get in the way of you just, just kicking back with a friend and just enjoying the stuff. Mm-hmm. So, were you ready to talk about all different kinds of whiskeys when you? Um created the whiskey lounge i mean were you like oh okay you've been talking about you know two or three for moet hennessy for so long now i get to talk about every single one that i want to to the whole you know wider world yeah well i mean what you need to remember is that you know yes i was with moet hennessy for two years but i was with oddbins for um a long time before that so i had already a lot of exposure to a lot of different whiskies, and I kept that up through my work at Hennessy days. I mean, yes, obviously, my focus job-wise and, and professionally was those three whiskies, but um, 
I still had an interest and still, you know, did a lot of research and reading about other other whiskies. And actually, as as part of my role, so I would we would taste com, you know, competitor whiskies at certain training sessions to 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 give the sales guys a taste of the competition as as they they saw it. So um, so yeah, I was I was more than prepared. Yes, no, I'm sure you were very prepared. And and what why did you even decide to leave and start the whiskey lounge? Uh in all honesty, well there was there was a couple of reasons. One of one and this might sound really ungrateful, but I I really I didn't enjoy the job as much as I thought I would. Um and I didn't feel that I fitted into the corporate um, world. You know, there was a lot of great people there and still are. Um, and, you know, all credit to them for sticking it out. Um, but equally, there was a lot of people who just ladder climbing. And, you know, you could have been working with um, any any product. It didn't, you know, it would. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I'm all in. You know, I if I if I'm working for you or you know I'm working for myself, I need to be focused and I need to be passionate about what I'm selling, what I'm doing, and if if I'm not, then I'm not I'm not going to give it a hundred percent. And no, I just you know what I hear that a lot. Actually, I've heard that quite a bit from a few brand ambassadors mm -hmm. that um, you know they're out there a lot of them who've come from the bar world and bartending, you know, they miss, they're all of a sudden stuck in a corporate job where they're not able to have that, what they get from the bar, what they get from, you know, chatting to people all the time in their role. Yeah. And it makes them unhappy yeah. and they want to go back. Exactly. And, you know, for them, as it was for me, I'm sure it's also challenging to not be able to talk about, you know, all brands, right? You know, because that's not your role. You're you're paid to to talk about the uh, the brands that your company is associated with. Now, there are one or two brand ambassadors who are very successful, and I take my hat off to them mm -hmm. who who have managed to carve out their role for years and years and 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 work around it and do talk about other brands and they're allowed mm -hmm. to talk about other brands which is which is i think a very powerful thing um but they are um i think the the you know in the in the minority i think mm -hmm. i think most i think most pe most brand ambassadors have a lifespan probably you know two to three years before they burn out from either I've heard anywhere from two to three to nine. I really Someone said I could only be a brand ambassador for nine years. I knew into the tenth I just couldn't do it. So nine, nine years. Well that that's hats off to them. I know and they were international. But so when you had okay I'm gonna do the whiskey lounge. It's mm. kind of what were your first steps and how did you see it grow? The first steps were really that um Amanda, my wife and I, we, we would talk about obviously work and play and whatever else. And, um, and this is, uh, you know, even before we were married. Um, and it kind of got to the stage with Moet Hennessy where 
I was, you know, I was just getting really hacked off with it all. Mm. And I didn't really know what to do about it. And I was even, I even considered applying for a global ambassador's role with Glamorangy, which um, a very good friend of mine who works in Glamorangy, quite high up, so I won't mention his name, um, actually talked me out of because he said to me, if you do that, you will, you know, you'll risk your family life because mm. it will be away so much. Right. That it, it could have a very detrimental effect on your on your family, and we just had our daughter at the time, um, so I didn't go for it, and I'm very pleased I didn't go for it. Even though I'm sure it would have been you know, great fun to travel mm. the world, um, and so we we were we were talking, Amanda and I, about what I could do, and we already had the York Whiskey Festival kind of still on the go, um, and she she basically talked me into the fact that this business which wasn't yet called the whiskey lounge but it was was obviously before before um it started it was um that this could be a a, a business for, for me and it was a kind of serendipitous moment um in the autumn of 2017 where I was called into the office in the, in the London office and um, and they said uh, we're really sorry you're gonna have to make you redundant oh. and it's weird because I had this kind of almost um, like a dream the night before this about that I was gonna leave and I was gonna start my own business and so I think they were expecting my reaction to be, oh, no, you know, and, and upset and so on. <laughs> and actually my reaction was, oh, okay. <laughs> this is the moment of my dreams. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, yeah, I feel very lucky because obviously most people who, you know, put yeah. in that position are, you know, it's, it's a disaster. Um, I mean, they offered to keep me on on my, you know, on my, on the same wages as a you know as a sales guy I said, that's, that's just not for me mm -hmm. uh, i'll take my redundancy thank you very much and i started the whiskey lounge three months later and uh, did you see uh, you know were people receptive to it right away yeah yeah generally speaking yes i mean it was i mean again if i think back to those early days it was it was a far cry from from now so in the first year we had the york whiskey festival um and i started doing tastings around the country so in london brighton um lancaster uh other places basically with within pubs where i'd made their acquaintance during my years with my hennessy um and it was just me driving my beaten up old car with a bunch of whiskey and glasses in the back almost like a traveling salesman but 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 not um uh -huh. and i would you know occasionally i would stay away but if you know if i was in the deep south um but if i was um not too far away i'd drive home and i'd be home sort of midnight or a bit later or something i mean it just became perfectly normal Mm 
And then the following year, we started doing the uh, Manchester and Newcastle whiskey festivals along with York, and they they were they were a, a hit straight away because Newcastle, obviously, I had um, history Good with. Fun, yeah. Um, even though Oddbins was no more by that point, uh, you know, I think people already remembered me from my Oddbins days, so that, that that didn't do me any harm, thankfully. And and Manchester, I kind of identified as a as a as a real potentially strong area and as it proved to be um and then the following year we so we went from doing three festivals in 2009 to doing five i think in 10 and then we were up to eight and then 10 or something like that uh, and so, did you see the i guess the audience for these change throughout the years the 12 years that you've been doing them oh absolutely mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, particularly when we started doing them further south, so in London and Brighton. Uh, I mean, the, the first year in Brighton was a was a real eye-opener. I mean, I, I actually lived not too far from Brighton when I was a kid in, in, in uh, Rygate in Surrey, uh, which was about an hour's drive, I think, from, from Brighton. And uh, but I don't. I didn't remember it being the way it was when I we first went there with the whiskey festival. You know, this very uh, bohemian and, and and vibrant city, which uh, which is completely bonkers <laughs> <laughs> in the most wonderful way. But you know, so we 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 put on this whiskey festival on in the Hilton in Brighton, which is this kind of network of, of function rooms. I mean, it's immense. You go, I did get lost in there. <laughs> I think there's customers still trying to find their way out. <laughs> uh, and, um, but the customers we had come there were, oh, it was just incredible. These young people. I remember a guy dressed in a pink tutu over jeans or something like that. <laughs> and it was just wacky, but it was brilliant. And um, just seeing all these young people coming to enjoy whiskey, and it was so. It was just, yeah, it really. It definitely illustrated quite early on that whiskey was about to go through quite a, a revolution. In terms and of, uh, seeing that revolution, uh, that um, was that when you thought, oh, you know what, these people really need a book, and I need to write this book. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's not as simple as that. I've I've been meaning to write a book on the subject for for years and years, and I've had, you know, I've kind of come up with ideas, but never, you know, um, brought them to to life. Um, I again, I'd be super honest about this. I was very fortunate. I was contacted out of the blue by a publisher. Um, Fabulous. And, you know, not just any publisher, but DK, Penguin Stroke Random House. Um, well, the story goes, actually, they sent an email through the website saying, oh, we're trying to contact Eddie Ludlow about potentially writing this book for us. And so this email was forwarded to me. I read it, and my immediate my immediate reaction was, this has got to be a practical joke. This is, <laughs> this is my Geordie mate, Connors, putting, you know, a, putting me um to task so i nearly replied you know yeah right (laughs) i didn't so i I replied and said yeah yeah that sounds really interesting um and so then we had a phone call 
Um, and then I went for a meeting um, in, in on, on on the Strand, and um, and yeah, I was very fortunate. They they wanted a, you know a specific book, you know, a, a guide to tasting whiskey as it is, uh, and they wanted me to write it because <laughs> I think they thought I was younger than I was. <laughs> no, no, no. They yeah. they heard about you. I know, but. I have to say, I have this book right here, and I devoured it. Wow! Literally in one day, it is so number one, beautiful and mm. beautifully not only beautifully written but beautiful inside, mm. and so accessible for anyone from a beginner, you know, really for a beginner to even someone who knows a little bit to, you know, I'm sure masters because it just makes it so easy to understand. And I don't know, it, hopefully it was your idea to do the, I think it's the smartest thing to do the four, you have 20 tastings of mm -hmm. four specific types of whiskey mm -hmm. at one sitting. And I think that's brilliant. It is, it is just such a wonderful book. And was this the idea that you, you know, after it was finished and during it, that you, you know, was it your, con you know, conception to do it this way? Yes. Well, in in, in consultation with the publisher, that's how we decided to, to format it because we wanted to, I mean, obviously there's a lot of whiskey books out there and a lot of very good whiskey books out there and fabulous whiskey writers. Um, and to be honest, I was quite surprised they didn't ask one of those more established guys and girls. Um, so when we were putting this together, we wanted it to have a point of difference. And the point of difference was going to be that it was a practical book um, in which people could actually, you know, taste along and, and, and see using their own taste buds and olfactories, you know, the difference between the, the whiskeys. Um, I mean, it was quite challenging in terms of choosing the whiskeys. because That was going to be my next question. How, how to choose when you have to choose, you know, so you've chosen, you know, four times 20, 80, 80 specific ones with obviously options underneath them. Yeah. yeah so it's, That must've been the hardest part. Yeah. It, it, it probably was actually, I think, I think, because I knew that it was potentially an international book, not just a UK edition, then I needed to consider you know, what was available globally. And yeah, I mean, it, it did my head in, to be honest. <laughs> All the research I had to do in that regard, apart from anything else. Um, I mean, I have heard that, you know, I, you, know, you can't help but look at reviews on Amazon and whatever. And there's one on the US site, which is a little bit unkind, I think, because the the person writing it says that it's completely impossible to get hold of any of the whiskeys, um, which I think is unfair. Uh, <laughs> you cannot believe an Amazon review. Don't you know that their TV show is about how they're liars? So don't worry uh, about that. I know, but you can't help it. And, and, you know, I've been told, stay off the Amazon reviews, but you can't help it. Um, I'm, I'm lucky most of them have been really lovely. Um, in fact, I was I had a message completely out of the blue. I hope you don't mind me mentioning this, but um, through Facebook saying, um, I hope you don't mind me messaging you. Um, but I thought I'd let you know that I bought your book 
And um, myself and a group of us have been going through all the lessons, one after the other. We've so far bought 45 of the whippies from the book. And we are working our way meticulously through it. And it's none of us have been into whiskey before this. And, it, and it's, and you, and you know, our confidence has been built exponentially through each lesson. And it was just such a lovely, lovely thing for someone to, to say. And even, even just that makes it all worthwhile. Oh, what a compliment. I know I was looking, I can't wait to start, actually. I'm mm-hmm. going to start from the very beginning mm-hmm. and go mm-hmm. through it because I've always, I love, I love my bourbon, mm-hmm. maybe because I'm an American, but, um, yeah. <laughs> and so I've always wanted to learn more. And I was like, oh, I can't wait next week, or, you know, to start. I don't have yeah. all of them, but, you know, to make, you know, to try and get some of well, them and try it. Well, maybe we can do lesson one together. Oh, that'd be fabulous. Yeah. We'll do it for the show. Yeah. Um, um, but, you know, I think you're being super modest when you said, I don't know why they came to me. When you have so many titles, um, you know, in your bio and ones that I, I don't even know how to pronounce, as I said. Now, please tell me how to pronounce the keeper of the. Keeper, keeper of the quake. Quake. I don't want to embarrass myself by trying to say it. And you are a member of many whiskey um, uh, groups and guilds, and you you are the man, really. You are one of the whiskey guys in uh, in this milieu. So you know it's not surprising well, that DK came to you. Yeah, uh, it makes me feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> it's a very I mean, English thing to say. I, I think I think I'm very fortunate have been in the right place at the right time on many occasions i am you know extremely lucky not just professionally but in my personal life with my wife and children um and i think i think passion and determination and a strength of character can carry you through a lot of situations and i think that's probably you know could be part of the reason i've got to to, to doing all the wonderful things i have um but you know i would i would all i would never ever uh address myself as a whiskey expert you know it's really not it's not it's not something that i would be comfortable self-applying i've heard i've heard other people applying wine expert or things like this to themselves and i i just cringe because you know there's there's hundreds if not thousands of people out there that know far more than i do um i probably have a a, a good broad range of knowledge on the subject and I'm, you know for me the, the thing is communication it's about it's not necessarily how much you know it's how you actually communicate that knowledge and you know that that's that's knowledge that's been entrusted and and you you know it's almost like uh, a respect thing you know you, I, I respect whiskey and i respect the people that make it and and i think it's um, important to convey that and that people are um able to enjoy it in the, in the best way absolutely and you know what? it's for us to call you an expert you don't <laughs> have to call yourself an expert we can call you an expert so thank you so much for being on the show i enjoyed so much talking to you and I, i'm going to reread the book and i can't wait for our tasting absolutely well thank, thanks again for having me on it's been um yeah it's been really cool and uh, I don't, I don't get to tell those tales to too many people. So thanks for listening. Of course, <laughs> now that it was we great know to learn. Thank you. you.
Here's how to join the Whiskey Festival in a box. So obviously this year, we can't be having the Whiskey Lounge in real life. But you have thought of something super creative, and you're doing the Whiskey Festival in a Box. So tell me a little bit about how that concept started and what it is and when it is and all of that. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, as you rightly point out, we're not able to bring our events physically to to people in, you know, in the venues that we normally would. And, and it, yeah, it's very challenging because we're all social creatures, and, and for us, seeing people face to face welcoming hundreds of people into these venues um to enjoy whiskey is 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 part of why we do it um and it's it's really heartbreaking not being able to do that so the next best thing are virtual events you know there's there's no getting around that so uh we've thought long and hard about the best way of putting these events together over the last few months, we've done a lot of virtual tastings with accompanying tasting packs so people can enjoy at home uh, whilst we're doing presentations and, and chats and so on. Um, and so that's where festival in a, Whiskey Festival in a Box has come together. It's a, it's a, a knitting together, if you like, of different festival sessions which have different subject matters, um, each with their own accompanying tasting pack. Um, which is, uh, you know, very, very exciting. And I'm going to be presenting it from one of our local distilleries as well, out in um, lovely North Yorkshire coast, um, a place called Spirit of Yorkshire. Um, and so that's going to be exciting in itself. And then I'm going to be presenting or hosting tastings uh, with presenters from literally all over the world. So we have people not flying in but you know they will be there hosting their portion of the tasting from the united states from india sweden and so on so it's really really exciting and you know that that's one of the great things about this is this just wouldn't be possible in a physical event so it's one thing that we can do differently um, among others where we can actually bring people from all over the world into this into this event Fab. And, and where can people find out about it? What is your uh, URL? So it's um, thewhiskeylounge.com and it is the Whiskey Festival in the Box. Um, it's it's right slam on the home screen. So if you can't see it, I've done something wrong. <laughs> uh, but it's pretty, it's pretty obvious when you go to the homepage. Um, we've just today put up the list of whiskeys um, for each session. I think there's a couple still we're waiting to to hear about, um, but we've got most of them up there. Um, so it's it's looking really really exciting, and uh, yeah, it should be really great. I couldn't well, leave Eddie without asking him where home barn tenders should even start when there are so many whiskies to choose from. I think, yeah, and you know this is reflected in in. Um, in the whiskey industry in general, that you know, good whiskey is now being made everywhere, you know, all over the world. So, you know, whereas you know maybe twenty years ago, I might, I might have had to you know choose an exclusively Scotch whiskey selection. I would say now I would be tempted to go with you know a couple of scotches, maybe a, a, a um, an Asian whiskey and an American whiskey. Um, I've come to. Uh, probably the opposite way around to you you know I've, I've come to american whiskey quite recently 
and particularly for the book, uh, I had to do a lot of research, uh, which was very pleasurable. Um, and so, yeah, I've come to really enjoy um, a lot of American whiskey. So I, I would say probably an unpeated Scotch whiskey, something like um, Glenmorangie 10 year old or Glenlivet 12 year old, which is going to be you know very nice, light, citrusy, aperitif style. So something, something I would certainly describe as a breakfast whiskey, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily for breakfast, but as the first whiskey of the day. Um, and then either something kind of medium peated, uh, even a blended scotch like Johnny Walker Black Label, but I would even maybe go for something like a Springbank 10-year-old, uh, which is a Campbelltown single malt. Um, not It's not super heavily peated like an Ardbeg or a Lagavulin, um, it's just got just enough just to balance out the sweetness and the, you know, the natural sweetness of malt whiskey uh, and is you know, a, a, a unique dram, really worth trying. And then I would maybe go for something like a Cavalan, uh, so a Taiwanese single malt whiskey or a Japanese single malt whiskey, um, something like a Nika Takatsuru or Cavalan Classic or Concert Master. Um, you know, so many to choose from nowadays. But you, basically, some something that has a little bit more spice and um, richness than the Glenmorangie or the Glenlivet. Doesn't have the peatiness of the Springbank, so it's you know distinctly different from those. And then in terms of the American whiskey, mm, I would. Struggle between bourbon and rye because I love both. Um, however, I think I probably drink a little bit more bourbon than I do rye, but I do quite like um, a bourbon that's quite rye heavy. I'm trying to think. There's a, a four roses. I can't remember if it's the small batch or the single barrel. One of those is is, is rye heavy, and I really enjoy that. I think it might be the single barrel. Um, and I like that because the rye for me just gives it that lovely little bit of dry spice, which sometimes bourbon can be just that little bit too sweet, but the rye just tempers that slightly like, you know, like peat in, in malt whiskey. So that's probably what I would go for. Fabulous. And would you serve them neat? Uh, I would serve the two scotches. I would serve with, with a, a jug of water as an option. Uh, water for me is for a lot of people the most revelatory thing about their whiskey drinking experience because it just brings out so much in the whiskey um not everyone likes to do it and i i would, would definitely not say to anyone that they have to do it but i would always encourage people to try it at least and and just see for themselves what what it can do um similarly to to the japanese or the taiwanese I, but i would also advocate the highball, um, which is something I really came across in Whiskey Live in Paris many, many years ago in the Nika archive area, which was just incredible. And I had a couple of these highballs and I was away. <laughs> <laughs> they were so delicious, uh, which is essentially crushed ice, uh, the whiskey and, and soda water. Mm-hmm. Very, very simple. It's whiskey's gin and tonic moment, I think. And then for the um, for the four roses, I would certainly either have it just with ice, a big lump of ice. Speaking of old fashions, 
I feel I would be remiss if I didn't have this classic as our cocktail of the week. We could fight about how the old-fashioned should be made. Sugar cube versus sugar syrup. Someone once told me that in a bar in Australia, when you ordered an old-fashioned, you received a beer first because we finished drinking the beer by the time they finished stirring the old-fashioned. That's a little extreme, but I'll let the bar make it any way it wants to. But at home, I must admit, when I want my old-fashioned, I want it now. So saying that, here is our cocktail of the week made my way. Add 50 mils of bourbon to a rocks glass with one big ice cube. I'm leaving it up to you which bourbon you prefer. Then I add two bar spoons of Demerara sugar syrup to it, as I like mine sweet. Then two dashes of Angostura bitters. Then I stir, counting for 50 seconds. Voila, an old-fashioned is born. You'll find this recipe, more variations on the old-fashioned, plus all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll find all the ingredients in the shop. Now that you're drinking an old-fashioned, close your eyes and put yourself where Eddie would love to be drinking his dram of whiskey right now. Did you know you could be endorsing Old Fashions wherever you went by wearing the Lush Life Old Fashioned t-shirt? More than just waving the Old Fashioned flag, you are also supporting Lush Life. You can find it and loads of other cocktail and blazon t-shirts at alushlifemanual.com slash merch. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly and wash your hands and stay safe. Next week, we'll be meeting the man behind Sinatra's favorite spirit and one of the most iconic brands in the world known by its two famous initials, J.D. Until that time, bottoms up.